Well, good morning, Fondren Church. Thank you. I appreciate that robust greeting there. Needed that today. Don't you need that? A little caffeine, a little Holy Spirit, a little robust greeting on daylight savings time, spring break, all that stuff. Um, you guys are all leaving for Park City, Utah tomorrow. Is that right? Some of you are, actually. Um, in case you're wondering, I'm, I'm just going to cut this off right here in the past because you're going you're to rush me afterwards. You're going to ask me, where's Susan? And she's not in some exotic location herself. She's down in the nursery. Her and my daughter Haley, they're down there working in the nursery because we got some babies down there. Probably not a bunch today, but we got some babies in this church. Y'all know that? I mean, we got a lot of babies. I just got a, a, a message last night by text from a couple that did their wedding not long ago, and they announced their pregnancy. Uh, preachers always do the math, right? There's, we do the wedding, and we get the pregnancy. We always do the math. I'm just saying. We do. It's not right. It's a dark part of my heart, but we do the math, right? Do you ever do the math? Oh, I, older people don't like it when you get pregnant real quick after the wedding. They don't like that. But I do the math. But look, we, look, we preach grace, right? Sin abounds. Grace superabounds. Isn't that the gospel? That's the gospel here. But st- I still do the math. Anyway, we, we just rejoice in um, good things that are happening and, and uh, literally church growth when it comes to the nursery down there. But that's where Susan... Uh, my Susan and my Haley are today. They're not at you know on the South Shore of the Pacific or the Riviera Coast in France or somewhere like that or Tupelo celebrating Elvis's birthplace or anything like that. But that's where they are. Look, I'm not going to say the word karma. I'm just going to say comeuppance. Okay, but for four years as a college student and then for almost 14 years after that, I would go spring break. I would always go to the epicenter with Campus Crusade for Christ. I'd go to the epicenter of spring break every single year. And it gra- it, I graduated to the point, literally graduated, to where I would, uh, would emcee this conference. And so wherever the epicenter of sin during spring break was, that's where we would go, the staff and students, a couple of thousand from around the country. And I would emcee, there would be four different weeks. So I'd spend a month in March at the beach. Well, isn't that great? They would give me per diem. And it was just fun. I called it work, but it was just fun. It was glorified vacation. I did that for so very long. There was one year I was actually on MTV. I wouldn't do anything foolish, but I was next to some people who were doing something foolish. And I got on TV and my parents, grandparents were so proud of me <laughs> and my crazy risk-taking, thrill-seeking personality. But uh, So I'm just getting my comeuppance. Here I am and I've been at Fonder. We've had Fonder Church for three and a half, almost four years. We'll celebrate four in August and I've, I stay here every spring break. My life is drab, monotonous, boring, Lifeless, no zest, no spice, no Tabasco sauce or Worcestershire sauce or however you say that. Uh, if you would take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, all the passages in a moment will be put up on the screens. We're, we're going to do a, something a little different today if, if you want to turn there. And I, I really value that. I long for the day when we've got it in our budget to just put ESV study Bibles out in front of everybody and then offer an invitation where if you don't have a good study Bible, just take it with you. We probably would impose one per family unit or something like that, and we would monitor it strictly by cameras. Now, I'm thinking if you steal a Bible, you're going to find Jesus, and then you're going to repent. Isn't that right? But if, you're a, if you have a Bible, you can access one. I think that's going to be really good for the day. So here's what I want you to do. Turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in 4, 5, and 6, really in chapter 4. And then we're going to ask you to flip over, and we're going to look with a bit of substance at 2 Timothy chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and get out in front, Luke 4, and then 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're testing your proficiency, your acumen right now on turning there. Luke 4, 2 Timothy 4. Today, I've been silly for a little bit. 
But we are uh, going to get serious as we let you know that we're starting a new series, a series in March that will flow through this month and then lead us up to Easter, which is Sunday, April the 5th. But we're starting this series that we're calling Learning to Follow. At the beginning of the year, Gary Watts preached the first sermon on what is a disciple. And we, our elders and leaders, began to think, you know, we're at a point now, a few years into the life of our church, where vision leaks, where there's a drift from the mission. And we, we've had so much excitement uh, coming here to this building and making it our own. And we're in the middle of this secure and restore, where we've secured this property uh, for the long term. And we're hoping to restore it and see good things happen and for this property to be used collaboratively in the future for the sake of the kingdom, to be a city on a hill, to be salt and light. But we really feel like we want to and need to clarify what the church is about. And let me just say, I know I'm throwing a softball over the plate right now, but the, the, the mission of the church, of our church, of the church is not to fill a building The mission is that you and I would be filled with Christ, that we would have Christ formed in us. And Jesus, who said in Luke 19, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost, he said that that he's been given authority, and he gives that to us so that we would what? That we would go. He gives us a green light to go and to make disciples. And that's really what we want to be about. And so as we look at this series, Learning to Follow, here's where we're going. I want you to follow this structure with me. We're going to look at, we're going to look at three environments that I consider to be dynamic environments that can foster your spiritual growth. We're going to call the, uh, them the following. They all uh, emanate from uh, select passages in the Gospel of Luke, corroborated with the other Gospels. The first is the row. The second is, is the circle. And thirdly is the chair, the row, the circle, and the chair, and for note takers, if you would, on the row, write Luke 4.32. And on the circle, write Luke 5.16. And on the chair, write Luke 6.13. And we're going to look in a moment at Luke 4.32. If your Bibles are open, we're going to glance there in just a second. There it is up on the screen. But just backing up just a little bit, when we talk about the, the row, we're talking about what you're doing right now. And when we look at these three environments... As a pastor, for most of you, I am your pastor, one of your pastors, and we're asking you to embrace these environments. We're asking you to make a personal commitment to these environments. And the row, again, is what you're doing now. It's when the church is gathered in rows to to worship God, to receive from him, to have the teaching of the word with open hearts, with the desire to see your life changed. The, the circle is the plan, the mission of Jesus when he gathers disciples, all the willing hearts who want to follow him. And in Luke chapter 5, he says to them, hey, come with me. The plan of discipleship is the be with plan. How did Jesus change the world? He started a revolutionary movement of love. And his plan was a relational plan. Now, now the church, you know this, now the church uh, pays people and we acquire property and build buildings and all of that. All that can be a very good thing. But back then, it was, it was much different. It was a movement of love. It was a revolutionary movement of love. It's so easy. Our human inclination is to value comfort and convenience. And Jesus in love calls us to servanthood and to sacrifice. The environment of the chair is what we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And that is when uh, repeatedly the scripture tells us, and in Luke chapter 6 it says that he retreated to a quiet place. Um, 
we're going to talk about the value in a noisy, crowded, hurried, scattered world. We're going to talk about the value of silence and solitude and simplicity. So these are three environments that I'm excited about, and we can learn to better follow Christ. We can become his disciples in a, in a, mo- a more fully orbed and meaningful way as we embrace these environments, as we make a personal commitment to them. Luke 4, 32. Here we go. We pulled the trigger early. And they were astonished at his teaching. Could you imagine being the person in the balcony working the lyrics for me, working the words? It's a, it's a tough, tough job. The person who did it last week, I said, How was your, did you find joy in service? She said, never again. I was just so nervous. It was difficult. We love that, don't we? Luke 4, 32, and they were astonished at his teaching. He is Jesus. They were astonished at his teaching, circle that word, for his word, circle that word, possessed authority, circle that word. He taught. Now, the context of this, you guys, is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And if you back up, for those of you who have an open Bible, you can look back to Luke 4, 16, and it says that Jesus did this. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath as was his custom. I believe our lives should be modeled after Jesus. In the midst of our trinkets and toys and entertainment and diversions and travel and all of our interests and hobbies and things that we do, it's good for us. We honor God with our lives when we take time to regularly worship him when we come together with other Believers, Hebrews 4, verses 19 to 25, this verse we're putting up, it says this. You guys uncomfortable with silence? We're just building the moment. It's going to be huge. When we put this verse up, you're, I mean, revival is coming out. I mean, it's like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Luke chapter 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. Are we there? Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. All right, I'll go to it then. Hebrews 10, verses 19, here we go. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here we go. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Powerful language in the book of Hebrews. We're going we're gonna to walk through this book later this year, but in this passage alone, it says what? It says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us not forsake. Let us stir one another. What? Stir what? Not stir dissension, not stir the pot, not stir fry, not stir up trouble, but stir one another. What? To love and to good deeds. Why love? Because God is love. And Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. What? If you have love, one to another. There's faith and there's hope and there's love. Those are the greatest three, but the greatest of these is what? It is love. Our message of the gospel is validated. It's authenticated when it is indelibly fixated on our lives, when it's the hallmark characteristic 
of who we are. We're to stir. Let us meet together. Let us gather in rows uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath so that we can stir one another to love and to good deeds. Why good deeds? Because Ephesians 2 tells us, Ephesians 2.10, but we are his workmanship. God is the master crafter builder and we are his workmanship. He's the supreme artist and he has crafted you to do good deeds that God has ordained before the very foundation of the world. We are to stir one another up. You see, it can be a really big deal when we gather together. It can be a really big deal if it is our custom to gather together in rows and to honor what God can do in us, to to receive the word. Now, when we gather, we do what they've done for centuries upon centuries, what was taught and modeled in both Old and New Testament, 66 different books, a collection that we call the Bible, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. When they gathered, they, they gathered And they sang. Now, we sang just now, didn't we? And we've got really good worship at Fondren Church, don't we? I mean, we got got Topher Brown, right? You're not going to get much better than that. And we we have skilled people who lead us as we sing. And that is a very good thing. Now, let me just say this. When it comes to worship and gathering in rows as we sing worship to God, there, there are those of us who really believe in joy filled worship. And there are those of us who believe in awe-filled worship. Now, there are important passages that praise both of those forms of praise. Now, I want you to hear this because, you know, the number one subject that churches fight about internally and externally is what? It's not the character of the of the pastor. It's not so much the content of the sermon. It's not leadership things and different models of this or that or certain philosophies. It is what? It's music far and away. And I want to I I educate us this morning. For some of you, maybe it's an education. For others, it's a reminder. But I want it to, to be, a, a, I hope, a gripping reminder because Galatians 5 tells us, it tells us don't bite and devour one another. And we're doing this. We're doing this as, as a church. Now, look at Psalm 100. Look at what it says, Psalm 100. A, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. I heard my 10-year-old drop this verse on me on the way to school just about a month ago. He dropped it by memory, by the way. Preacher bragging on his kids. I do that from time to time. But if you're a joy-filled, if, you're, if your inclination is to celebrate in worship, then you love this passage, don't you? Let's enter his gates. Let's do it with gladness. And if, you're, if you lean toward being a joy-filled singer and worshiper when we gather in rows, then you are accustomed to a celebration. You like a little bit of pep. It almost um, can be a pep rally for you, right? I mean, you spent some time tailgating the day before and you're accustomed to some celebration and you think it's a crime, a downright sin if you walk in and it's somber in here. And you're like, if, you, if, if a joy-filled worshiper goes into a, a place that's formal, that has liturgy, that has a real sense of awe-filled worship, not awful worship, by the way, are you with me? Awe-filled worship. I want to be clear. But if, you, if a joy-filled 
person goes into an all-filled worship environment, what are they thinking? This place is dead. You people were cheering for your sports teams who were way overrated this year in the top five, and, and that balloon busted. And look at what you did. Look at, look at how you acted. Look at the money and the travel and the attention and the affection. Look at the worship that you offered these 18 to 21-year-old young men. You pinned your hopes of happiness on them, and they let you down. But make no mistake, all season, you acted like a fool. And then you turn to recruiting, putting your hopes on 17-year-olds who aren't even fully grown. You begin to look at like 7th graders and who's got an eye on certain 7th graders and their verbal commitment, right? You celebrate when you walk into an all-filled place with its formalities and its liturgy. You're like, this place is dead. But look at what the scripture says. This other passage here. In Psalm 4610, you know this. Hey, he says, be still. I'm looking at Shelby over there, one of his favorite passages. Be still and know that I am God. This is the part he loves. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. And if you're an all-filled person of worship, when you walk into a place that's joy-filled, there's gladness, and it just seems like people are talking and laughing loudly. And what is it for you? It's irreverent, and it's inappropriate, Right? But here's what I want to say. The Bible commends both. You hear that, church? So let's elevate the conversation. Let's, let's allocate for a broad expression of worship. And let's understand our inclination and what we're most drawn to. But let us, just as a man and woman are called to marry and they're very different, don't believe the lie of compatibility. He will not complete you. She will not complete you. You are vastly different. Just as a husband and wife are to look at each other in a complimentary way and appreciate differences, so we, in the worship spectrum of the church, ought to be able to do the same. Now, I could go passage after passage on this. In Hebrews 12, uh, Hebrews 12, 28, it says that worship ought to be with awe and reverence because God is like a consuming fire. Now, if that's the only passions I knew, and if I didn't interpret Scripture with Scripture and put it in context, I would be offended by Fondren Church. Uh, some of you were laughing and slapping five and hugging and talking, right? And, and let's put this in context and let's raise... The conversation. The Bible commends and calls us to express ourselves, our worship in an all-filled way and in a joyful way. Now listen, let's go to style for just a second as we talk about gathering in rows, as Jesus did, as was his custom. There's expression that uh, there's, there's praise songs and there's hymns. Now, if you're critical of praise songs, I want you to write down Psalm 150. And you know that the psalmist, there's multiple writers of the psalms, but the psalmist goes through the vast array of human motions, anger and injustice and discouragement, uh, wondering where is God, complete, just full of doubt. And he goes to joy and to gratitude. But the, psalm, the psalms close in the 150th chapter, the longest book of our Bible. It closes with praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him for this, praise him for that, praise him for this. Apparently, he didn't get the memo that you're not supposed to repeat lyrics. Right? 
But God bursts in us. I'm not taking sides. I just want to preach it all. But God bursts in us a new song. If we're ready, let's roll some of those. A little bit of redundancy here, but I think it's beautiful to see these passages. I think starting in Psalm 33. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings. Way to go, Topher. With loud shouts. Next. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Next. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98, 1. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Next. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Next. Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Can I give you the translation in the Hebrew? The new song means, ready, new song. It means that God gifts people. And when God does a work, you know what you want to do? You want to express it. And people that are talented, and that's not a lot of us, okay? It's some of us. But for people that are really skilled and gifted, God births in them new songs. And I would say to you, church, aren't you glad of that? Shouldn't you celebrate that? Now, let me get over here. I love hymns. I love that some of you love hymns. I read a survey about a month ago that asked millennials what they're looking for, this young generation. And it asked them what they're looking for, and it gave five different categories, this versus this, kind of a competitive spirit. But it said loud or quiet. You know what they chose? Quiet. It said auditorium or sanctuary. You know what they chose? Sanctuary. And you know that there's a new generation, thanks to some older leaders, doing it in a winsome way, pointing us back to great hymns. And here's what's great about hymns. Hymns have a robust theology. And hymns like the stained glass in this beautiful sanctuary remind us that our faith is rooted in history. Isn't that a good thing? And we gather to sing praise to God. And church, I'm asking you, I'm preaching to you today about preaching really, but about singing and saying, let's raise the bar. Let, let's look at this in a really healthy way. And let's spend little time running down others and, and arguing over styles and preferences that God doesn't care so much about. Now, there is worship that God condemns. Do you know that? We're going to put up a passage in Amos now. There's worship that God does condemn. I love the prophets. The older I get, I love the prophets. You know why I love the prophets? Because there's so much injustice and hate and greed in this world. And you can look. I went to Cambodia this summer, and you can just look and see the global problems. And it overwhelms. It floods my soul, and I get angry. And sometimes I get angry at God, and I want to pray the prayer that he asked us to pray. Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let us do our part to bring heaven to earth. I hate all your show and your pretense. This is God through the prophet. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. Now, verse 21 there, what is he doing? He's condemning all field worship. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. He's condemning their joy-filled worship. Both styles, both preferences, both forms of worship are condemned if our hearts aren't right. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. You want to worship? 
You want to do what the scripture says as, as was the custom of Jesus and gather in rows. Then we ought to leave different. And we ought to leave going to the mission field, running toward need, seeking to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. It's abomination. Strong word. It's detestable to God. He hates our solemn assemblies. He hates our joy-filled, loud expressions of worship if we're not going to the needs of the world and worshiping him through acts and deeds of righteousness. Now, when it comes to preaching, God places a high value on preaching. Anybody want to preach? Anybody want to be the preacher? I had an opportunity a few months ago to talk to a young group of would-be preachers, uh, hopefuls. And I told them about just, you know, they asked, does it ever go away, that feeling, that pit in your stomach, the mental muck and the, the jello, the gelatin feel and the sweaty palms and the cotton mouth and the, the weight of responsibility. I don't think it does. And it's a weight that, that some are called to bear. And throughout the generations, God has used men and women to be the, the voice, the conduits of his power and his hope and love and generosity and justice to our world. We see it in Moses. Remember, we've looked at Moses. We see it in Moses. We see it in the prophets. We see it in John the Baptist. We see it in Jesus. We see it at Peter at Pentecost, and we see it in the church-planting genius of the Apostle Paul. Preaching is really important. I don't have this verse up, but look at what it says, or listen to me as I quote 1 Corinthians 14.8, a passage giving you quick context, a passage where Paul's talking about gifts. He's talking about how God uses us. He's talking about some debatable subjects of tongues and prophecy and preaching and all this. And he says that if a trumpet doesn't make a clear call, then how do we know? How do we get ready for battle? It's what one of my preaching heroes, John Stott, has said. That we live in an age of the sermonettes. And sermonettes produce Christianettes. Where we, we, we leave feeling things like this. I, I attend, but I'm not bought in. I give a little bit, but I'm not really generous. I try, but I'm about to give up. And it hasn't impacted us. It hasn't affected us. When it comes to preaching, I want you to look now at 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul about to die writing to his star student. Any of you, were any of you star students? No? I was every year, but that's just me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is Paul to Timothy, his protege, in some ways an heir apparent, a designated successor, someone who was going to also be a trailblazing preacher, and he says this. It's a charge, not an option, not something that he mildly recommends. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. How weighty is that? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead? Daniel Webster, who compiled the dictionary, said the greatest thought a human mind can entertain is his or her accountability to God. God is the great judge. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he says this to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, I can't tell you how special this passage is for me, just being personal for a second, because this was given to me in my charge when I was ordained for ministry. But Paul tells Timothy five things. If you're a note taker, you can write them down. I just quickly want to give you some explanation for them. They're really important for us to understand. The first is reprove. And to to reprove means to correct. To correct what? To correct the lies that you're believing to correct the rebellion that you're living in. Now, there's something wound up deep inside of us. Something really deep into, in, in the deepest part of who we are. Solomon said that a good one, a cheerful one, is like good medicine. Shakespeare said, absence makes it grow fonder. Celine Dion said, it will go on. What am I talking about? The heart. Let me throw another one in there. Bon Jovi said, shot to the heart. You're to blow. No. Jeremiah said, he said, the heart is deceitfully wicked. You've heard this from me before, hadn't you? I dropped this verse a lot. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? You see, there's something bound up in your heart and mine. And we've got to be careful just to unilaterally say, follow your heart, because your heart can lead you to some dark places. There's a passage in Judges 21-25 where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You need a ruler, don't you? A church needs leaders. We believe at Fonder what the scripture teaches. A church needs a plurality of leaders, godly men and women, to lead the church, to shepherd the flock, to guard, to, to challenge, to, to do all these things that Paul tells Timothy and many more. A nation needs leaders. And if a nation has godly leaders, that nation will probably be a godly nation. But your heart, your life, your character, your soul, who you're becoming, you need a leader. You need a leader. And have you thought about it? This morning, I'm just prying up. I'm just getting in your business for a little bit. But what masters you? What you're currently ashamed of? What has its claws deep in you and that's dragging you down? Have you ever thought that that debt, that addiction, that pattern or cycle of defeat and bad behavior that it was at first an expression of your freedom. And now you're mastered by it. And it weighs on you. It's why you and I, and I'm with you, it's why you and I need reproof. This week I was standing right back here and I overheard Laura McAlpin who will close our service today, who's now leading our marriage ministry. We don't want to just perform wedding ceremonies. We want to equip people to get married. And we're setting up something in place to help every couple who gets married to understand more of God's design 
for love and marriage. And she was standing next to Tammy Sims, uh, our new administrative assistant. Tammy is awesome. And those two were talking, and they were talking about a wedding in September. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, so-and-so's called and requested, but I already had a wedding on that day. And they look at each other like, oh, no, no. And I go, I said, what time is that wedding, and what time is the other wedding? Y'all know what I was about to do, right? Schedule two weddings for the same day, right? Right? Because that's that's me. I've got this people-pleasing thing. It's not healthy. It's sick. Don't laugh. But what did they do? They just looked at it and go, oh, mm -mm." like, it wasn't even a topic of conversation. They, weren't even, they didn't even tell me the times of both weddings. They just put September 26th on the calendar. I'm like, hey. And in my heart, I thought, hey, wait a second. I'm the boss here. Right? I wanted to play the boss card. Never, that rarely goes well. Be careful. Men, be careful. Okay? Rarely works. But I wanted to play that boss, uh, boss card. But something in my heart was like, wait a second. Y'all don't tell me about wedding. I mean, you, but what? look, they are both helping me, helping us do what is good. And if my life is going to be sustainable and biblical and healthy, and I can get good time with my family because weekends are already crowded, right? But this was a good thing, but I needed that, that reproof. I needed to be corrected. The next thing that Paul tells Timothy is rebuke. That's a tough word, isn't it? I I mean, let's be honest. Anybody want rebuke? I had a leader with Campus Crusade for Christ for a number of years. He moved to Georgia from Kansas, and he was the leader of the southeast area. His name was Joe Buca. And what did we call him? That's right, Joe Rebuca. And he had some of that quality in him. Joe loved the truth. He loved love, but he really loved the truth. But here's what's great. How cruel would it be? Consider this. How cruel would it be if God only told you what was wrong, reproof, but didn't tell you what was right? rebuke. And that's what rebuke does. It tells you the right path. You see, for there is a way of wisdom. There is a better way. There there is a path and one veers to the left and one veers to the right and it's jagged and it can be dangerous. And as Proverbs 4 says, we have to ponder the path of our feet. That's a fancy poetic way to say, be careful about the direction of your life because there is a right way. There is a wisdom that is morally and directionally and emotionally and spiritually superior. And we need to be reproofed. I do. Slow down. Don't schedule too many things. We are helping you lead this church and your family and your own heart. Slow down. There's reproof. Rebuke. Here is the right path. And then the third injunction that Paul gives his young protege is to exhort. And this word is used interchangeably with a word that I prefer more, and that is encourage. Here's the idea. When you preach, when you lead, when we as a church speak the truth in love, we are not to beat people down. We're to build them up. And I'll be honest with you. I've been involved with some churches through the years where guys get excited about their role on the platform and they get to a place and they they can quote verses and before you know it, they're beating people down. And what I want to offer you without watering anything down is a regular time when you come 
to this place and sit in rows. You can go other places and hear better sermons, but I want you to feel like you can bring people and you can bring yourself and you can bring people who are struggling with faith because aren't we all? And you can come here and know that you're going to get the truth, but also you're not going to get beat down. You're going to be built up. Jesus really wants us to build people up. Read Ephesians 4. It talks about preachers preach, teachers teach, leaders lead so that members are equipped to do the work of the ministry so that we would all be built up in love built up that's what it means to exhort or to encourage fourthly what does paul say he says that we are to do that with patience sanctification jesus said in john 17 lord sanctify them he's praying to the father sanctify them in the truth your word is truth sanctification is not that we form some weird religious goofy isolationist subculture all right That's not what sanctification is. Sanctification is that our lives are being cleansed and purified and made winsome and magnetic and attractive, and we're becoming more and more healthy. That's what sanctification is, okay? So let's take it out of the religious jargon category and make it a good, healthy, wholesome, biblical word. And here's what I'm saying to you this morning. Paul was telling Timothy to preach with patience, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with patience because sanctification is a slower process than most of us want to admit. I will say to you, the the maxim, patience is a virtue. Archie Bunker once said, patience is a virgin. But patience is what wins the day. And patience is, according to Galatians 5, a fruit of the Spirit. If you try to conjure up patience on your own through sheer human willpower, you will probably fail. I do. I do in the parking lot. I do dealing with some of you. I do on Lakeland Drive. Patience doesn't work for me very well, right? We're praying for things and hoping for open doors. It's amazing the open doors God has given Fondren Church in three and a half years. We're praying for more. And God is building patience in me. Does it hurt? It hurts. Am I naturally patient? I am not. Ask the people who live with me. But I am to preach with patience. And when I lead and shepherd this flock, including you, starting with my wife and my children, my small group, I've got a couple of them, our elders, our staff, everybody, I'm called to do it with patience. Because maturing is a process. Hey, parents, it's a process for your kids. Not a month goes by where I don't meet with one parent who's freaking out. And my first advice to a freak out parent is don't freak out. You're freaking out, man, lady. You're freaking out. You violated my number one rule of parenting. But how do you not freak out when your kid, who there's no emotion like parental emotion, there's no emotion like parental emotion, but how do you not freak out when they're outside the bounds, when they're, they're believing lies or living in rebellion? Don't freak out. Hand them over to God, but understand that you need to be patient with them. And you know what? Urgent, angry, domineering parents create rebellion in the hearts of their children. But patient parents communicate to their kid, you can come to me and we can talk. And I understand you're on a process. And I always look to the freak out parents and I say, what were you doing at their age? And then I'm like, stop, don't tell me. You can see it on their face. Right when you say it, you can see it on their face. I was doing just the same. I was doing worse. It's right there. Freak out parent. They forgot how far they've come, where they are now. The last one, and we'll close, 
is not just with patience. It's teaching, and this is the how. This is application-oriented. Now, here's another thing. Just like we argue about styles of worship, we argue about means of preaching. And there's a lot of people who think there's only one way to preach, and I say, prove it. Come on. You got the floor. Prove it. I heard a guy recently at a church, I'm not starting a fight, but he said, we believe in expository preaching because man is not creative enough to decide what subjects to preach. And man, I'm telling you, my mouth opened wide. And I thought, you drank the Kool-Aid from a seminary. Okay? Here's what I want to tell you, okay? There's textual preaching. There's topical preaching, which is, you know, is falling flat for a lot of us, isn't it? There's textual preaching where you take one passage and work it through. There's expository preaching, which the definition really even in clear. And I found the definition of people espouse to that as being the only way aren't even clear what it is. But it's the verse by verse, right? But here's what I'm saying. Jesus never went verse by verse. He met people where they were at and spoke the word into them. The prophets, the apostles, well, let me go, the apostles, they never went verse by verse. Okay? Here's what I'm saying. We need to be careful. Because the same, here's what I'm concerned about. The guys, they're all guys who are preaching the Bible. They're adding to the Bible. Okay? They're adding to it. we got to be careful. But here's what we do know. Every time a preacher stands up and for a congregation, he's dealing with the shy and the timid and the loud and the boisterous. He's dealing with someone who feels the weight and effects of their sin and someone who's joyful about an answer prayer or a blessing in their life. He is preaching to the rebellious prodigal son who's wasting his life away and is now learning humility. And he's preaching to the elder, older brother who feels entitled and prideful. And in the same room, guess what? In the same room every Sunday. Isn't that right? And, and Paul doesn't tell Timothy, just like Jesus, he didn't tell, here's a superior way to preach. I will tell you a superior way to preach. This. Always this. Opinions can help. Illustrations can be of some aid and substance. But always we are to preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season because there will come a day, and we're there, aren't we, where people will want their ears tickled. They will want to hear what they want to hear. And what I love about what God is doing in our church and in the church is there's a new generation of people that realize there's some hard stuff in here and there's some tough stuff out there. And we don't need to sweep anything under the rug, we don't need to hide. We're going to have an Easter sermon on April the 5th, and after that, we're going to tackle some of the biggest questions that serve as objections to, to Christianity. I would love for you to email me one of your big questions, and we're going to look at what the Bible says for six weeks after Easter. I anticipate what some of those questions will be, but I would love for you to text or email. About 98% of the church has my cell phone, so just text me a question. We're going to tackle that. We need to look at what the book says because it's all Scripture is inspired. It's given to God for us. And let it, I say, let it have its work in your life to reprove, to rebuke, uh, to exhort with patience and teach because we don't just need to know the what. We don't just need to know the why. The why is important. Can I say the why is really important? When I was in seminary, my preaching professor talked to us about the imperative and the indicative. The, the, the imperative is the command, do this, go do this. Love other people. That's the imperative. Well, God, I don't want to love other people. 
the indicative is we love other people because he first loved us. When you're loved, what are you going to want to do? You're going to love others. When you know that you've been forgiven, you're going to want to forgive others. And the trouble with our churches is we become moralistic, therapeutic cultures of behavior modifiers where we're telling people, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it just sounds like a bunch of imperatives. And I don't know about you, but imperatives weigh me down. Oh, but the indicative, the indicative is the gospel. The indicative is that we are loved and we are forgiven and we are equipped and we are called. And this morning, hot off the presses, I really am going to close with this. I, I began to imagine what a church could look like if we preached the word and if we opened up our lives and we gathered regularly and we wanted to receive from him. Imagine church differently. Imagine the redemptive potential of a spirit-led, Jesus-centered, grace-exuding body of believers who continue in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, who are committed to advancing all that is good and beautiful and true, a, a church where it's a place where anybody could come, everybody is welcome, and anything can happen, where we're ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us with gentleness and reverence, where the claims of Jesus are heard in a fresh way in our day, expressed in thoughtful, non-churchy ways. A place where we cultivate the life of the mind, where people who have read and wrestled with the big ideas of the day, people who have convictions and thoughts about science, culture, evolution, history, and philosophy, people who learn about theology from bright minds like N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight and Neil Plantica, leaders who lead with diligence, members who discover their gifts, meetings that don't waste people's time, time that is that is not misspent in black holes of bureaucratic hoop jumping that demotivates volunteers and sucks the life and energy out of the mission and repels leaders. A place where people are equipped, where faith is passed on, where it's not okay to be off mission, where it's not okay to think the church is just about meeting a budget, running a program, filling a building, or maintaining the status quo. It's not okay to be more concerned with appearances than with truth, with rules than love, with money and success rather than poverty and justice and religious veneer more than deep dedication to every dimension of being a disciple. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you birth in us a desire to learn to follow. A desire to learn to follow after a Savior who, Lord, put himself in environments, but above all, who didn't just put himself in a row, in a circle, in a chair, but put himself from heaven to earth, who was so rich but became poor on our behalf who lived and died and sacrificed and was raised again. And Lord, let us learn what it means to follow him. And today I do pray that, Lord, you would create a culture here where we look forward to the Sabbath, where we look forward to finding our rest in you, when we look forward to gathering, when we look forward, when we make it a priority to be here regularly and to worship both joy-filled and awe-filled and to be open to hearing your word. And Lord, I pray for the teachers of the word of which I am the primary one. I pray that you grant us a real love for your scriptures. A real desire to preach the word. To not hide from its realities and to face square on the, the intersection between your word and this world in which we live. And Lord, that we would find the marvelous, matchless wisdom of Jesus. 
Lord, bless us as we sit in rows to know that it's so much more than that. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand today? And we're going to have a time just to pray. And uh, would love for you, for all of you, of course, to join us as we sing. And uh, I'm going to be down front. Would love to be able to pray for anybody on Daylight Savings Time Sunday if you're still awake. Any need in your life, any direction that you need to take, or just something that we can pray for. Um, and if I'm just standing here looking at you, then maybe somebody will come pray for me. Because I need, I need your prayers. Um, God has something for our church. And I'm excited about reading and learning and wrestling with that and seeing God do something here. Let's sing and let's pray. You come if God leads.